Hi, I'm Roger Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to In Conversation with David Frum. On this program, you'll hear big thinker and writer David Frum's exclusive analysis of contemporary events, issues, and ideas for The Hub. In Conversation with David Frum is hosted by The Hub's editor-at-large, Sean Spear. If you're enjoying this program, please visit our website at www.thehub.ca for more great insights into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. The Hub's podcasts featuring David Frum are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be back in conversation with David Frum for another installment of our bi-weekly video and podcast series on the key issues concerning Canadian policy and politics. In today's episode, we're discussing the upcoming mayoral by-election in the city of Toronto, including some of the issues and personalities that will ultimately influence the outcome. Although the official election day is still a few weeks away, advance voting starts today, June 8th, and with so many candidates in the race, it's possible that even relatively small advantages in the advance polls could have a significant effect on the overall results. So we're entering a crucial stage of the election campaign, and I'm keen to get David's perspective, especially since he happens to be in the city as we speak. David, thanks as always for joining me. A pleasure to be with you on this apocalyptic day. I don't mean the election, <laughs> I mean the air. It's amazing. <laughs> you, you were born and raised in Toronto and continue to spend a lot of time there for, for business and personal reasons. And, and as I mentioned, you're there presently. What's your big picture sense of the state of the city and the issues animating this unexpected mayoral campaign? Is it marked by a general sense of satisfaction on the part of voters? Or are you discerning a bit of restlessness? I worry that if you try to look out the window, you'll just be looking in, in the mirror. But as someone who, who did grow up and remembers the subway arriving at Eglinton Avenue from its previous terminus at, at Davisville and remembering a much smaller a t- a town, here are, I think, the things I noticed that I think are the issues. Um, I mean, Toronto is now one of the great cities of the world. Uh, which, when I was born in 1960, would have seemed like the punchline of a joke. There was, a, there was a joke, I'm sure totally apocryphal, of the BBC correspondent who comes to a party during the war years um, at some house in Rosedale, and the host, hostess asks him, where is he living? And he answers that he's living on Jarvis Street. And the hostess says, Jarvis Street, that, that's not a very good address, to which the journalist replies, Toronto isn't a very good address. <laughs> uh, Okay, no one would say that now. It's a great address. Um, it has become this economic motor for all of Canada. And because it's a jobs motor, it is pulling in people from all over the world. And because it's pulling in people from all over the world, it has housing pressures that are just, I mean, I, your, your heart breaks. Or how, do people, how do people manage? I mean, how do, how do people put a roof over their heads? At the same time, Toronto's having a serious problem of crime and civic disorder, not compared to some of the worst cases in the United States, but compared to the safety and orderliness that Canadians rightly expect and, and Canadians have come to take for granted. Um, it, it's a departure. People feel less safe than they used to do. Um, they, they don't walk around as easily as they do. And, and they're just struck with, with a kind of disorder that maybe isn't dangerous, but still is, is disturbing and, and detracts from people's sense of, of belonging in the place in which they live. So I, it seems to me the issues in this election are housing and public safety. We'll come to housing in a minute, but let's stay on, on public safety. As you say, those issues have loomed large in this campaign. It's, it's fair to say that former police chief Mark Saunders and conservative journalist Anthony Fury have seized a, a, on them, including challenging the status quo on policing, 
safe injection sites and so on. Are progressive candidates vulnerable on the subject of public safety? Well, one of the problems in Canadian governance has been the extraordinarily low turnout in municipal elections. It's a scandal. It shouldn't happen. It's an, it's an act of dereliction of duty to yourself not to turn out to vote. And because voter turnout is so low, 20 percent, sometimes 25, not more, that means that the organized groups get disproportionate strength, especially public sector unions. And so a lot of progressive policies that are probably in the abstract quite unpopular survive because the people who are mobilized to participate have more tolerance for those policies than the people who complain about them but don't vote. And so if there's one message, you know, the, the hub is nonpartisan, it doesn't advocate or oppose any candidate, but I think you can advocate voting. I mean, people who watch this video are probably going to vote. Get your friends and neighbors to vote. The mayor of Toronto has a lot more impact on your life if you're a Torontonian than probably the prime minister of Canada does. So if you're going to vote for prime minister, you should vote for mayor. As you mentioned earlier, David, housing is another big issue in this campaign. Toronto's rental and sale prices are amongst the highest across a number of comparable cities around the world. I'm struck, though, David, that the candidates seem to be talking past each other to a certain extent. Some candidates, like Councillor Brad Bradford, are focused on liberalizing land use rules in the name of growing the supply of market-based housing. But others, like frontrunner Olivia Chow, seem mostly focused on the supply of affordable, or what you might call social housing. What explains the disconnect in your mind? living on earth versus not living on earth. <laughs> uh, the price of housing is determined like the price of any good by supply and demand. The demand is not up to the municipal authorities in Toronto. The demand is created above all by federal immigration policy. There are people who are now talking about 100 million people in Canada. I don't think that's a fantastic idea, but I don't have any control over that. But if there are 100 million people in Canada, guess where almost all of those newcomers are going to be coming to live, the greater Toronto area. Uh, so Toronto is going to need to build, build, build. And even if cooler heads prevail and immigration remains only at its present very rapid levels, um, you're still going to need to build, build, build. You have progressive-minded people say, I'm in favor of more immigration but I'm opposed to development. And what and my solution is more and more process, where more and more stakeholders get the, to veto even the housing that's, that is already permitted. And my answer to all of this is that we're going to build social housing and oppose gentrification, whatever that means. But social housing means taking money that the city doesn't have to acquire land that the city doesn't have to build housing at less than the cost of building the housing with money that comes from who knows where. So... Uh, the way you get affordable housing is you build a lot of regular housing. And then as you build more regular housing, the older housing stock declines in relative value. And, and affordable housing is always the older housing stock. And the way you get older housing stock is by letting people buy new housing. And that means build, build, build. I mean, that's got to be the motto for, uh, for the GTA. Build, 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 build. And there isn't – and when people say, well, I oppose gentrification – what does that even mean? What, what, what it means is the people with jobs aren't going to be prevent, are going to be somehow prevented from buying new housing in other areas. You're going to wall off areas of the city. That, that's, it's, it's unintelligible. The answer is, if you're, if you're going to have immigration at, at levels, global economic trends that concentrate economic development in metropolitan areas, then this metropolitan area has to build more housing. Yeah, let's, let's stay on this subject, David, because as you say, the campaign seems to be in the midst of a somewhat contradictory conversation. All of the candidates are positioning themselves in favor of lowering housing costs. But as you just outlined, many oppose trends like gentrification or, or efforts to build new market-based supply. 
What do you think explains the persistence of NIMBYism in light of the ongoing housing challenges? I think it's, it's driven by by two things. One is it's it, there is a dirty little secret that the existing housing owners are not altogether unhappy that their most important asset is constantly rising in value. You know, your house is made up of two assets, the, the land underneath the house and the dwelling on top of the land. The dwelling is a human structure made out of materials that degrade over time. So the dwelling part of your property is a depreciating asset. And monetary inflation can disguise that to some degree. But really, every year you, you live in your house, the dwelling portion of the house becomes less valuable. If the, uh, the asset in total is increasing faster than the rate of inflation, that's because the land underneath is, is appreciating faster than the dwelling is depreciating. And a lot of people have a stake in that appreciation. And so, yes, they, they are in favor of affordable housing in theory, but a real program of building should have as its goal making sure that housing prices don't rise so fast and maybe don't even rise in real terms at all. And if you're doing that, a lot of people are going to feel that their asset that they're counting on is not performing in the way that they think. So that's one aspect is, is the existing homeowners who are the people most likely to vote have a kind of double, a split set of motives about what they want for the city. Uh, the second thing is there is, I think, a, there are areas where progressive thinking is more connected to reality and areas where it is less connected. But the place where it is most disconnected is in its feeling of that about housing. That it just refused to accept that housing is subject is, is a marketplace asset. And and what I think what what is going on here is Canadians have collectively agreed that healthcare should not be a marketplace asset. And looking at the United States, you think, you know what, the Canadian healthcare system, it's got many defects, many ways it's inferior to the American system, but it's got many ways that it's better. And it, it, it can, and, and it's proven over the years that healthcare can function as a non-market asset, as a social good. And so I think a lot of people on the progressive side say, why don't we treat housing as a commodity like healthcare and sever it from the marketplace? But the problem is, when you think about, if you were to take that seriously, you think about the share of the public expenditure that is consumed by health. That is the kind of thing you're looking at. You're looking at commitments in the hundreds of billions of dollars to build housing, to give it away at way less than it costs to build it. And the, then you have a question of how do you allocate it? Because the most important difference in housing and, and healthcare is very few people want to consume healthcare. I, I think if you said to any given person at the beginning of the year, look, your taxes on healthcare are going to be so much. Look, you personally get to say, how much of that would you like to spend on yourself? I think most people say zero. The, the less I spend on healthcare, the better. I'm happy to have my contribution be entirely consumed by somebody else, poor, sick person. I'd, I'd rather not have a healthcare problem. But our appetite for housing, you know, we want to, we want to capture all of the benefit of what we pay. So, you know, there, there are some people who will, for one reason or another, overstress the system and maybe use more than, than they should in the healthcare domain. And there are people who make bad choices, taking drugs, drinking too much, being careless while they drive that cause them to consume healthcare. They don't, they might otherwise not need to, but the, but like 100% of humanity wants to consume all of the housing it can. And so the allocation problem is impossible. And, and that's why housing must go into the marketplace along with food, fuel, and other important items of human flourishing and can't be removed from the market the way health Canadians have tried to remove healthcare from the market. 
iHub Podcast listeners, Rudyard Griffiths here, the Executive Director of The Hub. Wanted to ask for your support today. No, I'm not asking for money. I'm asking for your attention. If you could check out right now in our podcast feed, a new series that we're dropping. It's six episodes in partnership with a group called Pathways Alliance. This is the Canadian Industry Association that's tasked with the big ambitious project of decarbonizing Canada's oil sands. They wanna achieve net zero by 2050 and we want to have a conversation with them and you about how to achieve this ambitious goal. Pathways is the hub's first national media and advertising partner. Their support helps us make all these other great podcasts. So if you're enjoying them, please listen to these episodes with Pathways. Give us your feedback. We'd love your input, but also share them with friends and family. That would be greatly appreciated. With that advertisement over, let's go back to our regular programming. Let me put a, a political proposition to you, David. As you probably know, uh, federal conservative leader Pierre Polyev has really seized on the housing issue in the past several months and, in fact, is increasingly arguing for the case that the federal government ought to put conditions around transfers to municipal governments related to liberalizing land use regulations. In effect, David, He's sort of making a bet against the nimbyism that we've just been talking about. And the argument goes, because conservatives generally underperform in cities, that actually staking out that territory may counterintuitively position conservatives to, to make progress on these issues, the kind of equivalent of Nixon goes to China. What, what do you think of that idea? Well, as, as policy, I think the ideas have a lot of merit. And it's really the, the federal government doesn't have a lot of sway over influencing building policy, unlike provincial governments. So it's, it's about the only lever that a prime minister of Canada would have. So it's, it's and it may not be a very powerful lever, but it's the lever he's got. So he's pulling it. If, however, they think this is going to be good politics, I don't I don't know about that because and again, that's not to say you shouldn't do it. But remember, the interest, the, the homeowners are the people most likely to be voting conservative and that. One of the things that a successful build, build, build policy does is decrease the asset appreciation that homeowners have been enjoying for a long time. Um, that, you know, one of the features of the economy of the 1950s and 60s that some people look back to nostalgically was that incomes rose rapidly, but housing values did not. Since in the 80s, 90s, and especially in the 21st century, it's been the other way around. Incomes don't rise rapidly, but asset values do, especially your housing asset values. And so, and the people who are benefiting from that asset appreciation, you know, they're, they're going to be mad if, if, it, if it's constrained. But the test of successful policy is going to be, in fact, do you slow or even stop or maybe somehow reverse some of the value of, the, of these assets that are so important to so many people? We've been talking mostly about housing supply. Let's take up the subject of housing demand. As you mentioned earlier, David, uh, Canada has accepted more immigrants in the first quarter of this year than it has in any time in, in the country's history. And interestingly, you're starting to observe mainstream voices challenge the Trudeau government's immigration policy. The Globe and Mail's editorial page and, and others, including at the Hub, have started to warn that the numbers are too high and actually threaten Canada's pro-immigration consensus. Uh, what's your take? 
I think that's that's true, especially because uh, if you if you're going to take on immigrants, you have to be, have the infrastructure ready, at least contemplated, at least planned. And, and you said we're, we're bringing in millions of people over the next decade. We have no plans to build more housing in a in, in anything like the proportions. No plans to increase the transportation in anything like the proportion. And we have an economy that is increasingly concentrating its job production or job creation in fewer and fewer places. You know. And this is one of the ways that Canada is very unlike the United States. They're, they're, Canada doesn't have Silicon Valleys. It doesn't have, you know, Nashvilles and all these regional centers that prosper. The jobs are created basically consistently in the GTA and the Vancouver area and fitfully in Calgary and Edmonton. And that's pretty much it for employment growth. So un unless you have ideas about how to create a proper welcome for these people, for the people you're bringing in, you need to think about slowing the rate of immigration. And, and this talk of a hundred million people, it's just, it's just reckless. I think what, I think it's, by the way, it's all based on it. someone we know wrote a book, uh, Matt Iglesias wrote a book called a billion Americans. And somebody said, well, it, to get a Canadian policy, take the number for the United States, divide by 10. And that's our policy. You think you let some blogger who has some deliberate provocation book title for the United States, then Put that through a multiplicator division table, and that's your outlook for the future of Canada. That's nuts, but that's what that's what seems to be in mind. I would just say, at the risk of being presumptuous, with regards to your point, David, about urban agglomeration in Canada and the concentration of economic activity in a small number of places, uh, I've published an article at the Hub today, June eighth, on that very subject. And and just to put some numbers behind it, that the city of Toronto now accounts for one fifth of of Canada's total GDP. If you account for Montreal, Vancouver, Calgary, Edmonton, and, and Ottawa, Gatineau, you're at north of 50%. To put that in some context, to reach the same level in the U.S. involves the, the 30 largest metropolitan areas. So it's a much more diversified uh, economy, at least in geographic terms, as, as you say, which, which maybe is a good segue to my final question. Toronto's politics are marked by something of a divide between the city's core and the surrounding suburbs. We've previously talked, David, about the potential from out-migration from the city of Toronto and other major cities, due in part to housing prices, but also the durability of remote work. What do you think the political consequences of those trends may be? Uh, will urban professionals moving to peripheral communities change the political character of those communities, or will the communities change them? Well, we have in our lifetime seen two transportation revolutions. Not in your lifetimes, in my lifetime. You've seen one, <laughs> that have transformed both the way life is lived and, and politics. And the first is the, the advent of the um, universality of the privately owned automobile, which had created the motorways and then suburban life. And th the second has been the hub and spoke aviation system, which has made air travel almost universally accessible and that has distributed economic activity more regionally. I think Zoom technology looks like a third and Zoom-type technology, all those other face-to-face -face technology, that have, and it's going to have consequences. As you said, we'll see whether it distributes, whether like the, the automobile, it distributes people regionally, that is, people still continue to live in the GTA just a little farther from the center, or whether it really enables people to live all over the Cape Breton Island. And then we'll see whether, as, as you say, you raise this very important point, when you distribute people, do they become like their, do they change their environment? Does the environment change them? Is it a little of both? But then if a little of both, how does that get balanced? I think one of the things that it, with this election, municipal election in mind, that a lot of Toronto policy is made by mayors who answer to part of the GTA, but not all of the GTA. 
And, and, and this is why it's going to be so important to have provincial governments retain their ambition and their determination. Because if, if Toronto won't build, that doesn't mean that the building doesn't happen. It just means the building happens in places where the transportation grid is less adequate. So these decisions about what, whether and where to build have to be broader because they involve more than just the boundary line of the, of the city of Toronto as it was formed, you know, really by decisions made half a century ago or third, I guess with amalgamation, a third of a century ago. David, this has been a great conversation. We'll be following the results in a few weeks closely. I want to thank you for joining us at Hub Dialogues and look forward to catching up in a couple of weeks. Good to talk to you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to In Conversation with David Frum, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews, so please leave us one. And a friendly reminder that you can access a video version of this recording anytime on YouTube. Simply search for The Hub or The Hub Canada or go to our website, www.thehub.ca. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atter-Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub's podcasts featuring David Frum are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. 